0: Obviously, the the FA delegates that are in the Park Fermi should have known this. They're on headsets, they've got links to the control tower. They must have known that surely he hadn't done a pit stop up until the end of the race. So he must have been, they must have been expecting him to come down the pit lane. So, what I can understand is why they let us go.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined as always by the thorn in my side, Timo Albus Daly, and the Pyriton to my hay fever, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you both?
2: It's probably quite apt that you said Puriton, because they've literally been getting me through the last week where I've had an allergic reaction still to my antibiotics, so...
1: Is that what we've pinned it down to, is the antibiotics?
2: I don't think there's anything else. It's just taking me a while to get over that, which is fun.
1: Strange. Timo, yourself, any rashes, any strange ailments you'll need to air on the podcast before we get down to things?
3: No, I am perfectly healthy, knock on wood, so I'm going to just keep it that way and ask how you are.
1: I'm not too bad. You can probably see from the camera now I've turned the light on that I'm a little bit sun-kissed. I spent the day down on the coast in Kent and, uh, yeah, walking along, playing a bit of mini-golf and, uh, yeah... Probably should have had some sun cream on there. So hey, we live and we learn. Um, but that is not all. We are joined uh, by along the racing lines, immy Cousins. How are you, immy
4: I'm really good, thank you. Literally just submitted my dissertation in the past about 40 minutes. So oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can we ask the subject? What's it on?
4: Um so I did it about how women in motorsport are using TikTok to create space for themselves where they're not accepted in other parts of the community. Mm,
1: very interesting. All right. Speaking of making space, or certainly leaving space, we're going to move on to talking about the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and probably going to touch on turn two and three with George Russell there. Um, Well, we'll kick off with... Uh, what the hell has happened, our sort of overall overview segment and we'll kick off with Mercedes who are looking a bit more competitive this weekend, certainly a step forward and what we want to see compared to their previous races, although it's early days for this to be the result of the changes between James Allison and Mike Elliott. Allison returns to his role as technical director, while Elliott retakes his position as CTO Chief Technical Officer and again, it's, it's early to see if these moves are going to be rectifying the issue, if they have started rectifying the issues that we've seen the team struggling with since the tail end of 2021 but time will tell um the car looked i don't want to say more a bit more competitive this weekend or possibly that was due to the fact that the aston martin looked a bit more draggy it didn't really have the ability down the straights that we're anticipating i, don't know if anyone's I think got it counter. was a
3: combination of aston martin deficiency due to drs issues and a couple of other things they were talking about and mercedes maybe not improving a lot but just being consistent at least with what they have and Ferrari got in there more than anyone was necessarily expecting them to including Ferrari so it kind of the fact that at least Lewis I mean they were both in the top 10 but Lewis could at least stay nearer the front and be challenging signs consistent even if he didn't get past shows that I don't know about improvement but they're not going they're not getting worse. Yeah
2: I kind of agree that they look to me, they look like they're in a similar po- or a relatively similar position as they were previously. You know, a broken red ball could still get past George Russell whilst it couldn't get past the Ferrari. And I think it's hard to tell because Baku is such a different track to what we've seen recently and it's so unique in its features. But I won't I don't particularly like judging anyone's performance here because to me it's such a standalone track that you can perform so differently as we kind of saw with the Leclerc to what we've then we
1: we'll, may see them throughout the season. It's definitely unique in the way that it's format, and it's tricky to get any sort of basis off of it for car development. And again, this is only round four. It's, it's very early doors, and we're talking about an unstable platform they're trying to develop. It's tricky to know whether it's something's simply rectifying a problem or if it's actually a technical step forward. But what do we think about this change in the hierarchy? I'll throw this one to you, Amy. Do you think it's we're looking to see an active Mercedes that knows that it's got some things that needs to change?
4: I think it's definitely heading that way, but I don't see it getting back to being any sort of kind of contention by the end of the season still. like Obviously, again, it is still early days, but like we didn't particularly see that ever happen last season when they were having all these issues. And even though this year is coming across better than it has been, I just still think they're going to be just trading that bit behind, especially with the Aston Martin being a lot more competitive than it has ever been.
3: I think it's going to be a case of like last year when they were battling Ferrari close for P2 towards the end. Red Bull already nearly 100 points clear of second place so we know what's going to happen there barring literal civil war within Red Bull in the factory and they don't start making it to races at all because they're too busy with that and I think it would just be a case of maybe they'll actually get P2 this year depending on how Aston Martin can keep going throughout the year, because again, Aston Martin, you think they'd be happy with P3 and the constructors anyway, looking from last year and their overall plans, they're exceeding expectations of their own for this year already. So, And it wouldn't be too surprising to see Mercedes beat them necessarily. I think the big loser there would just be Ferrari back in P4, because I don't know what they've got to do to get past both of them, because as nice as it was to see Ferrari up there a bit this weekend, it was then very evident in the race. And we weren't at all surprised when, it didn't turn into much more than just a podium place for for Charles and Carlos was around Mm,
1: I think Mercedes have certainly got development work to do but it is also going to be relative to what the teams around them do either a lack of development from Ferrari or again we've got Aston Martin in a position we've never really seen this outfit in before so we don't know how they're going to be able to develop through a season we don't know how that's going to come with regards to the rest of the field so it's it's something to keep an eye on for certain and it's yeah, it's it's untested waters really for the, the three teams that we're looking at and who can stay the closest to Red Bull as the as the race weekends roll past.
3: Close um, is also relative depending on how you measure that, with Red Bull being as far ahead as they are.
1: Yes. Yeah. I know I mentioned this later on in my points. It's the fact that the gap between first and second points wise is the same points, is a greater point span than it is from second through 10th. So that's already the lead that Red Bull has pulled out across the rest of the field, which is quite impressive. Um, I'll run through quickly some of the sort of general things that we saw across the weekend. Obviously, we had a new sprint setup, which overall and again, these notes are all pretty much my thoughts on this one. Overall, it works within reason. There's a greater onus on each track session as it either directly generates points or is strongly linked to ascertaining track position. It's either two qualifying sessions that are going to demand or set the grid or it is two little racing periods which give you points across the weekend. So from a pure racing standpoint, there's a lot of pressure and this goes some way to authentically generating action. We saw this in a way with Gasly's problems compounding across the weekend, the lack of track time and the pressure to perform mounting. The team came into it with essentially half a day they're anticipating having because they only had essentially one car at any practice session or qualifying running getting numbers on tire degradation or the car's ability to perform through certain sectors it doesn't feel overly manufactured it felt natural and the sprint now being standalone means that the Grand Prix is unaffected which i think has been one of the long-term issues we've seen with the sprint is the fact that it does the opening part of the Grand Prix it does that sort of, unjumbling of the uh, potentially sort of mixed up qualifying it has all the cars overtaking to basically filter down to fastest at the front and slowest at the back which is the exciting part of the opening of a grand prix and the sprint used to take that but now they're two separate things we're not seeing that so much by and large it was pulled off well it meant that we had new storylines and focus points going into the grand prix off the back of the sprint namely george versus max where the two had made contact going through the opening sector and potentially a heated discussion in Park Ferme afterwards. The two qualifying sessions gave us two different periods of racing, but also saw teams struggling to balance tyre quotas. We saw Lando Norris getting through to the final round of the sprint quali, but without any competitive tyres to run on. And in doing so, he also knocked his teammate out, who still had a set of softs he could use. So we had teams coming up with different strategies, or essentially tyres that they just weren't going to use by the end of the weekend. That soft tyre was never going to be the tyre of choice for the Grand Prix itself, unless you were going to pit on the last few laps to do a fastest lap takeover so it sort of made teams think very differently about how they're allocating um sort of tires how they're allocating strategy which again provided a very unique and sort of novel period of racing which is quite good It's definitely presented a hurdle for the teams to negotiate and overcome, and it sits well within the natural ebb and flow of a weekend in the way that teams develop and look at tyres over a period of time. However, as a balance, the badly thought-out Park Fermi rules saw Ocon and Hulk really gambling on strategy where they both started from the pit lane because purely essentially as soon as FP1 ended and qualifying started, the cars went into park fermé So any changes they made to the suspension setups were going to be doubly impacted. We saw both drivers serving or well, Ocon serving a start penalty in the sprint, and then both drivers serving the penalty in the race. Where Hulk later had changes, basically copying Magnuson's setup. And this essentially ruined the race for half the field that was stuck behind them when they sort of didn't pit under the safety car because they started in the pit lane, started on the hards, and went long. And I think a review of how those rules are applied would allow for a bit more fluidity in the strategy and a lot less stagnation in the field, which led to the I don't want to say dull weekend we saw in the Grand Prix, but certainly one that wasn't as exciting as previous Baku Grand Prix have been. But nonetheless, it was it, dull. It it was a connoisseur's Grand Prix. There was a lot to take away from it, it's, it's, it's but a it wasn't remix. exciting. I say stuff.
3: it's dull. But it is also weirdly my favourite race of the season so far just because we didn't have any nonsense barring Ocon on the last lap, which obviously not Ocon's fault. I mean, we need to just call it maybe another FIA fast or something, but just Ocon's thing is quicker to say. Um, but for me, I just... I think of part of the issues you mentioned McLaren and Norris there and the kind of mish there with Piastri as well, having tyres that, uh, that Norris can't use is partly down to the fact that we didn't know what the format for the weekend was going to be until way too late in the day, which considering we've had three-week break since Melbourne before Baku, you'd think F1 would know what the heck they're doing for the next race and can tell the teams that in enough um, advance to have them be able to plan for such a thing. So I think, like you say, it's got potential, this format. It personally did nothing for me, but I think the next two times we see this will be more representative of what it could actually do because everyone knows what to expect now and it, they'll have more time to prep for it but for me i still think that if you if you have to go down a sprint format which i still don't want at all in any way shape or form i don't know why you don't just look at formula two and formula three do the qualifying on the friday reverse the top ten have that as the sprint uh, grid for the saturday keeps things jumbled, keeps things interesting and means qualifying is very important for both days. The sprint quality shootout did nothing for me. It was just essentially, I'd rather have a practice session. And for the rookies there, I'm sure they'd rather have a practice session at a circuit like Baku, where it's pretty tricky, like May was saying, to get your head around. Um, and in it has a very unique nature. And then it would, I would feel a lot more natural. And then if you're watching feeder series as well, everything flows quite nicely. And if you're coming up as a driver then and you have these sprint races, you already know the format, you're not having to learn anything and you can kind of just focus on the driving.
2: I think the the issue for me or what I think would may happen if we had a reverse grid for Formula One is that these cars are all so different that I think if you put the slower cars at the front, I think they'd just probably be carnage
3: you don't even know you don't even reverse the top ten though. And under these rigs,
2: Maybe. you don't
3: you're supposed to be getting closer racing anyway. So in theory, it would be fine. As I mean, again, yes, you can probably use George Russell against me here and you'll have lots of fun with that. But for the most part, just behave and do close racing and get past each other. It shouldn't be a problem getting just doing clean overtaking. So
1: but if you mm-hmm. take that sort of lower half of the top 10 and put them at the front of the field in sort of a way that we saw with Ocon and Hulkenberg stuck in the middle of things, you do end up with a bottleneck and all of a sudden you just end up with a sprint with no overtaking because no one can get... Past Which we didn't cars. really
3: get much overtaking anyway. I mean, we got more overtaking in the sprint than we got in the Grand Prix, but it was still pretty dull. Yeah. I, I guess... Because, I mean, aside from Russell and Max, what else happened in the sprint really? You had Yuki tires leaving him and that was it. Mm, yeah, that was it.
2: Yeah, I think the main question I had when watching this was, how is this advantageous for those who are, who aren't fighting for the championship and those who are at the bottom of the uh, order? Because other than getting valuable data for the race, what's in it for those teams like Alfa Romeo? I don't think there is really, unless, unless something crazy happens, they're not going to get into a point-scoring position with a hundred-kilometer race, and I think. The only team it really helps is Ferrari, as one, they don't have to make any strategy calls, and two, (laughs) they have a lot more tyre degradation with their cars than others, which means they start to struggle as the race goes on, so sprint kind of counteracts this, meaning they get a better chance of more points, but...
1: What you're saying is something that Alex Albon said to Ted Kravitz in the Paddock afterwards. And he said that all it is is just a weird way of rewarding the top four teams. If you look at the Mm. teams that finished in the points in the sprint, you've got Red Bull, Ferrari, Aston Martin, Mercedes. That's it. So all you're doing is just increasing that gulf between the top four performing teams and the rest of them. And he said he finished in the top 10 in the sprint i think alex Albon did which under conventional circumstances point great mm. it's what williams really needs and it's surprisingly kind of close at the bottom williams and
3: alex Albon. look the one time you finish in the top 10 and you don't get any points for it you think mm. well, what does this boy have to do yeah it's
1: it it's a very weird reward system i think it should span across the whole of the top 10 but it should be a percentage of the points available or there's arguably a better way of doing it that doesn't F2 essentially and F3 just, format Yeah, or that just works already <laughs> doesn't essentially overly advantage the top four teams that are already at a very clear advantage
3: and What spr- did you make of it, Emmy?
4: I don't know, I, I would definitely think they can't just do the standard qualifying thing for the sprint, I just don't think it works, It just it is just boring, again with Albon's point of it's just going to be the top four teams getting points but like there, there is a reason that like the feeder series and everything. They, there's a reason they do the reverse grids for their sprint races because it does change up a bit. And obviously, you do still get the people that can get like be on the reverse grid and still go and win the race. But then also, you do get the races that are a lot more chaotic and there's just different people at the front. But then then again, another thing I would like to see is them do, try it with one shot quality as well because I think that would just completely shake the mm. entire grid up. That it just. So go
3: full F2 and embrace and have a mandatory pit stop from one tyre compound to the other.
4: Yeah, but it would just make it more interesting because now they have made it its own separate entity. Why not mess around with it, try to make it as exciting as possible because that was the idea of doing it in the first place was short, sharp entertainment for the fans that apparently can't watch an entire race.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The fans that aren't interested in the racing, as once was put by another pit podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, you. Yeah, now it no longer impacts the setup of the Grand Prix. You might as well use it as a sort of sandbox mode for F1 and just say, what if we did this? What if we did this? It's 100 kilometres. It's not going to matter. It's such a small points haul. It's unlikely to change the overall standings in the season. And It's it-
3: interesting as well. A small amount of points will make no difference to the top four teams. But if you're one of the lower teams that could make all the difference. So it should at least go to the top 10 or something, or have that kind of element of jeopardy there. Whereas you can focus on having a great qualifying session, as we've seen with, with some of the lower teams before, like they've got much better quality setups. Look at Williams, for example, then if they can at least maintain that for the race or just go down a couple of positions, those couple of points come the end of the year could be extremely valuable
1: i mean if you look at at the moment if you're alfa romeo alpine or Haas, your three teams split by two points you've obviously got alpine on eight Haas on seven and alfa romeo on six if one of them is able to score a point in a sprint weekend that all of a sudden pushes them up a a position in the standings and that's ultimately a huge reward come the end of the season because points mean money and that's what every team needs going into another season so it's There's a certain aspect of value to it, but I don't think it's being applied correctly.
2: I'm going to have a Timo moment and just put something crazy out there.
3: I'm having an impact. I love it.
2: (laughs) But what if we have one qualifying session and those that get into Q3 aren't allowed to do the sprint so that then the other uh, teams lower down the order can then fight more points than they would usually get on the race and then suddenly you get a very different constructor standing maybe at the end of the year
3: i don't think anyone would go for it but i would watch that and probably enjoy it more because you'd be able to highlight drivers that you don't normally get to see much of during the grand prix such as the rookies and there is kind of i'm not against that i don't think anyone's going to go for it but f1 themselves have had worse ideas so I can back it.
4: (laughs) I think what would end up happening, though, is... just looks
3: conflicted. (laughs) Sorry, go on, Amy.
4: Obviously, if there is points in it, I feel like teams, they'll just start sandbagging and just Mm. make sure they end up in the race still. So it would just be everyone slows... Everyone at the front will just slow down and then it won't make any difference to the smaller teams anyway because the cars will still probably, like... They Mm. won't get the opportunity because the teams just at the front that just have that much more technical sort of knowledge to them or just know how to make sure they end up in the race.
1: Yeah, and equally, if you've sandbagged to do the essentially the slow sprint, you've also got a fast enough car to be able to just blast through most of the field and get points again on the Sunday. So all you're essentially doing is for those that are canny enough to do it, certifying a double points haul. There'd have to be a certain means of doing it, and you'd have or you'd have to sort of.
3: Okay, counter counter one to Ellie Then, and if I take your proposal, I like it, but we have all of the teams, and instead of the drivers we see in a Grand Prix racing, all of their reserve drivers do it instead.
1: We've mentioned the reserve driver race before. We said that would be a great one to do for like non-championship events when we go to a yes, new but circuit. this is a
3: sprint, and the sprint's essentially boring as sod anyway. So let's make it interesting and put in the drivers. It's good experience. It counts as a session that they can get points on their F1 license to come and be in there properly and all that kind of jazz. And we actually might get an interesting sprint out of it. Because aside from Brazil, we haven't had any interesting sprint races ever. And um, then- this is from Baku, for crying out loud. If we can't have one in Baku that's interesting, what can we do?
1: Okay, there's two flaws to that. One, you need a team that's got at least two reserve drivers. And if you take the case of Ferrari, yeah, sure, you can dust off a of Robert Schwartzman with his, what has he now got, Italian or Israeli driving licence to circumvent the Russian thing. Um, and then you've got to go and try and pull Antonio Giovinazzi out of whatever LMP car you stuck him in to go and do Spa well,
3: Because there aren't any F2 drivers around that you could use instead. As long as they're in the academy. If they're in F2 or reserve driver... There you go. And every team's gonna have enough of those to do that.
2: It'd be expensive if a lot of them
3: They've got a fitter Powdy and they've probably got another fitter PowerDe running around somewhere in F two that they could use. I think they've only got the one. They literally have to literally well, get, of the find, well, find then get the Well, they get the second one then. They'll find enough. the second
1: one that's linked to Red Bull and drag him along and go, You there, come and get in a car that's not at all a fit Oh, yeah, because it's good team. racing experience. And even need Christian Horner would see that. No, Red Bull do not need him anyway because Nick DeVries isn't doing very well and they're already looking back at, um oh, what's his face that they've stuck Ricardo. in Super formula? No, not Ricardo. They wouldn't be sending Ricardo it's to Liam Alvin Lawson. Yeah. <laughs> <Liam Lawson. laughs> They're already there's already strong speculation that they're going to sort of pull Liam Lawson out of Super Formula sooner than he's
3: expected. And again, you're, you're saying this like they'll do any of this for the next sprint and they wouldn't. But if we did that next year, for example, it gives everyone enough time to have enough drivers ready and then they could do that and it'd be interesting. And then Ellie May and I have had a nice compromise to make the sprints more interesting and we can take great solace knowing that we can actually agree on something. Yeah
1: just a wild thing.
3: Anyway, back to the actual stuff that
1: did happen. Um, Checo pulls off the double, aping Oli Behrman in F2 and Marta Garcia in F1 Academy. It very much was a weekend for the double wins. Uh, Perez put in a drive that was very much needed from his perspective to sort of reign in Verstappen in the standings of the championship. And equally, Checo's street circuit prowess continues as he now trails Max by just six points. Which is very interesting actually. All of a sudden we've got this championship battle starting to emerge from a driver we didn't think was ever really going to cause one.
3: It's the only driver who could cause one, though.
1: Yeah, this season, certainly.
3: Drive I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And I do hope that, as it's early enough on in the season, they just let them race. I mean, we know how annoyed Max can get when he has to work for something and he can't just drive off into the distance. And particularly when Checo's involved, he's not going to necessarily help him cough Brazil last year, cough. Yeah. Um, so I'm all for it. We need something interesting to happen this season up front and we're not going to be able to get it from any other team. teams. So if we have to rely on Checo, then I'm suddenly an incredibly big fan of the Mexican Grand Prix.
2: Hmm. I really want to praise Checo and he did do a very good job. I'm not taking that away from him. I just can't but... help but think he's got <laughs> a little bit lucky. And I'm not saying he's very much due luck because he has had a lot of bad luck. But Max couldn't fight him on Saturday due to the damage, so Perez had no one really hunting him down. And then on Sunday, he only got ahead due to pitting under the car. I'll definitely give him his due because Max wasn't hunting Checo down and he didn't really get near to be much of a threat. But I also think Max's heart really was not in this weekend. He came into the weekend hating the new format anyway, and he seemed completely unbothered that the pit stop put him behind Perez, which... In some ways, I'm glad because I thought, "Oh God, this is Baku 2018 all over again." But the roles reversed when Daniel Ricciardo was ahead of. Mm-hmm.
3: I did think that
2: <laughs> he fell behind Max after losing out at the pit stop, and then uh, Red Bull told Ricciardo if he wanted to get past Max, he'd have to do it fair and square, and they ended up crashing into each other. But I do, oh, yeah, I think Max couldn't quite match Perez this weekend, but something fell off with Max.
1: He wasn't as driven as I think we've seen him previously. And I don't, just something didn't seem, yeah, he didn't seem fully switched on. But when it comes to the Checo argument, I think you, if you look ahead at the race, who still got to come. Miami street circuit, Imola, we can sort of forgive. Monaco street circuit, Spain, eh. Canada, also a street circuit. So we've got three street circuits out of the next few that are on the calendar. And Checo does seem to have a genuine ability to get a lot closer to Max in those races there's far more of a threat to Max early on than we're initially anticipating and it'll be interesting to see if that sort of pattern of Checo Perez Street Circuit King can be sort of continued and also what this does for Max, what this does for the sort of structure inside Red Bull where we see the team start to really lay allegiance and how things are fought out It'd be
3: nice to have a 2016 but with Red Bull, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be fantastic How do you
2: think they'd handle it?
3: badly uh, as badly.
1: always yeah it's Red Bull it's going to be handled badly <laughs> I think that's almost almost a certainty
3: I think Fernando's just chomping at the bit waiting for them to choose a side and then be like right how can I take most advantage of this <laughs> it wouldn't be Fernando doing it it would be Daniel Ricciardo sitting on the can I make wings. an early prediction then go on so if we're going to mirror 2016 we're going to have a, a Red Bull catastrophe on lap one in Spain and that is how we can get Fernando Alonso to win the Spanish Grand Prix
1: See if there's a Grand Prix. Fernando's winning this year. It's Monaco. I don't think he's winning Spain. The car isn't fast enough, but he could win Monaco.
3: That's why I said about an incident on lap one,
1: uh-uh, so we no. could ensure that happening. Uh-uh. Science is winning the Spanish Grand Prix this year, <laughs> but looks, um, but Fernando Alonso is winning Monaco. I'm calling. Do it you hate Carlos
3: Science because you seem to like cursing him a lot with things like this? <laughs>
1: I'm am saying what I've said. It's on, the, it's on the
3: recording. You know who to blame, May. There you go. When your boy Science goes out, turn one
1: they can't all go out turn one, lap one.
3: Oh, the Red Bulls are going to go out turn three. It's fine.
1: Anyhow, uh, speaking of the Ferraris, Charles is showing that the uh, Ferrari has something in it and the team pulled off a strong double stack pit stop actually under the safety car that was rather efficiently pulled off which to a certain extent, suggests that any rejigging and motivation coming from the new leadership is working. Uh, The next target for the team is getting Carlos closer to Charles' performance, Uh, but Charles' drive in the sprint earned him more points than he had in the championship at that point in time, uh, netting him seven for his Saturday drive over his accumulated six. I think he also repeated the same magic again in the race, earning more points than he had uh, all the way through the previous three races and the sprint. So he's made a huge leap forward and really sort of Put his championship right back on course. He's still not in the top five, I'd want to say, but he's certainly a lot closer. I can't remember where he's off the top of my head, um, but he's certainly a lot closer to where he needs to be. Do we think we've seen a sort of refired Sean Leclerc this weekend, or have we still got a little way to go for that?
3: Refired for this weekend is the key phrase.
2: He's good at round the streets of
4: Bracken,
3: mm. just not good at converting it to a win. No, four poles. It's not bad. How many wins, though? Yeah.
2: I think you're being slightly unfair on Carlos. His pace, for sure, was nowhere near Leclerc's this weekend. But apart from this race, he's been ahead of Leclerc, finished ahead of him at every other. Yeah. And I think part of me thinks half of the reason signs fell quite a way behind was he realized he was off the pace and didn't quite trust Leclerc. So rather than try, try and keep up with a pack that he inevitably knew he wouldn't be able to get ahead of, he ran his own race, managed the tyres in order to keep that position away from Fernando Alonso and limited any stress on the car to try and limit any reliability issues later down the line.
1: Possibly a very long game to have played There's two things I'll say on this Do you mean Carlos...
3: Hamilton and not Alonso though Because Alonso finished ahead of him
1: Alonso hmm. sent it into turn 5
2: Yeah I mean Hamilton, sorry
1: There's two things, one Carlos said he didn't have the confidence in the breaks this weekend Which around Baku, especially with turn 1 and turn 3 Is something you need big time The other crucial thing though Is at one point his race engineer said Okay let's go hunting And then we saw
3: nothing of him. Like he didn't. So Hamilton hunt him then. We saw Hamilton hunt him down
1: and close the gap. But then I think Hamilton realized that all he was going to do was just cook his tyres and get close to the Ferrari, but not actually get to make that pass. And there was no net result from this sort of, come on, Carlos, do something. Uh, Sort of like that, that meme of a guy poking a rock with a stick and going, do something. And he did. Nothing, unfortunately. So, especially when you've got this Ferrari all of a sudden appearing on the podium, it's tricky to look anywhere near as good as that. When again, that thing of your closest rival on track is your teammate, they're given the same machinery as you, you're expected to perform just as well. I think that's this is the first weekend we've seen that sort of that tabled as it were.
3: It's still pretty much 3 1 to Carlos in the season, though.
1: Yeah, he still leads him, he's still fifth over Charles Six, but how long for?
3: So resurgence from him, but in terms of consistency, I'll wait and see. Maybe around Canada, we have this conversation again.
1: Emmy, hmm. thoughts on the Ferrari performance?
4: I would say because obviously they bought upgrades or upgrade this weekend anyway. So that could definitely look at something as they looked at what they needed for Baku, just to get sort of off the start line, as it were, just to pick up some points this weekend and one where it's before has been a reasonably chaotic race the past couple of seasons. So I think that it's definitely a good start, but again, it's going to take some time to see if they're actually doing something about it. And if Charles is going to be consistently fighting for podiums again and again, signs as well. Is he going to be able to fight for more podiums as well this season? It's, it's going to take some more time than just, this one sort of glint of hope at the moment that we've got do
2: you think they brought the upgrades to this race because they knew that they are usually quite good around Baku so they thought let's try and optimise on that
3: are you saying that Ferrari had a good strategy idea (laughs) yes you know I'm going to have to go and sit in a dark room and ponder on that a little bit you're going to have to come back to me later on that one
2: Because even in 2020, when they did quite poorly, they still got pole in Baku and pole at Monaco, two circuits where there's slow to medium speed corners, which that car's good at.
1: Mm.
3: You might be onto something.
1: (laughs) There's certainly thought there. Uh, We'll move on from the Ferraris to the safety car which was triggered by nick de vries and proved to be important but also the reason why the race became so dull some drivers were already binning the mediums and a lot earlier than expected i think max was having pitted on i want to say it was about lap 10 when they were expecting the mediums to go to about lap 17 so by the time that he sort of pitted and came out the safety car then came out it transitioned from a double waved yellow to a full safety and um he lost out massively and found themselves significantly out of order. Equally, we have the drivers who didn't need to pit the pit lane starters of Ocon and Hülkenberg, who were promoted way up the order while running on the same compound, a compound that they have been able to ease in, this in the back of the traffic, not really pushing it too much. So they had tyres that were essentially still sort of dandy and fresh, sitting right in the middle of the pack, where they could now all of a sudden defend from a train behind them. And... what it caused was this sort of two car cork in the traffic flow and triggered an immense drs train that was hard for the faster cars to pass And it wasn't really until hulkenberg's tires eventually started to fade that the train fell apart and the drs despite being shortened this weekend i think it was 100 meters shorter down the main straight um it we still saw it being far too powerful. And eventually sort of even lesser cars were starting to really sort of blast past and the order was changing around a bit at the bottom. But on the face of it, allowing a lesser car to battle with a faster car should be fun. But the reality that we saw is that it just causes these trains of cars to be stuck behind one another in an era where there's supposed to be more entertaining, closer racing, more overtakes, nothing. And it's just interesting to see that in a circumstance that any other race, this would have possibly shuffled things around we didn't see that.
3: No, and I think as well, it goes back to slightly towards the sprint in, in the new format, at least, with it because of DeFries crashing. I think that was down to just lack of practice time for a rookie, and it's kind of... You saw it with Sargent in qualifying, I think, as well. It's a difficult track to, to get to grips with, like you were saying earlier, May, and it's... Even if you are a world champion in another category, Baku's still Baku, and it's... It's just unfortunate that I think with a bit on practice session, yeah, he may still have crashed, but I I think that uh, chance would have gone down a little bit. So it was a shame that it had to be De Vries that was the one responsible for, for changing the race like that.
1: Um, the next thing we saw really unfolding on the circuit was towards the end of the race, lap 50. So still on the lead lap, Esteban Ocon has now got to finally get rid of his hard compound tyres and change to a second compound to at least tick off that box of having run in an F1 race. So he goes into pit. And the problem is, at this point, the FIA has started laying out the barriers for Park Ferme, and they've started sort of beckoning photographers, the stewards, the scrutineers through to start basically assembling Park Ferme. And the problem is this also fills out pit lane entry and this causes a huge problem because Esteban Ocon is now barreling towards them expecting it to be a clear run to his pit box a quick change and out again and that was not the case. So to find out a bit more about what actually went down um, I've turned to our man on the inside, long standing Formula 1 photographer, Mark Sutton for the inside story So the question is, the sort of pit lane debacle, Estevan Ocon's pit stop on lap 50 um, Yeah Seems that the sort of floodgates been opened for media to come out into the fast lane of the pit area. And if FIA was yeah. unaware, there's still a pit stop about to happen.
0: Well, from my point of view, so we did the race and we queue up at a gate which goes into Parc Fermé um, and goes across the pit lane. So for the sprint race the day before, we didn't leave until after the checkered flag, and that normally is the rule. So we were a bit surprised to go before the chequered flag, but sometimes that's a welcome thing to do because we can get a chequered flag picture. Obviously, we don't expect a car to come down the pit lane right at the end there. Um, We were talking about the fact that Arcon hadn't done a pit stop, even down at the first corner, my colleagues and I were talking. Um, From what I know and what I've heard is that Obviously, the FA de- delegates that are in the Park Fermi should have known this. They're on headsets; they've got links to the control tower. They must have known that surely he hadn't done a pit stop up until the end of the race. So he must have been—they must have been expecting him to come down the pit lane. So what I can't understand is why they let us go. Um, anyway, most of the photographers were either on the photo towers, which are very, very welcome. Site for us at some of the Grand Prix and gives us a bit of height. Um, and then the rest of us were beside the gate. So these sort of um sort of fences they put up, sorry, more fences they put up along the park Ferme to protect the cars from getting damaged and people going into park Ferme. So I was personally along that. So I ran out, went along beside the fences. Um, and the way it works is that the delegates from the FIA, either scrutineers or the whoever they are from the FIA. They would give the thumbs up to the FIA media delegate, which is Tom Wood. Tom Wood would then give the thumb up to the security guy that's at the gate. And, and we go through. Simple as that. So this is nothing to do with the photographers being in the wrong place at the wrong time. We were officially allowed to go through the gate, go into our positions. The FIA had even put up their tenter barrier along the pit lane. I don't know if you saw that on the in-car camera coming in, but... Um, <laughs> Um, and then just to follow up on that, um, obviously there was a load of media that was reporting that we were in the wrong place, that we were there illegally and we were, we were doing things wrong, but I will, um, I will tell it from my point of view is that we weren't in the wrong place. We weren't doing anything wrong. We were just doing our jobs as we always do every Grand Prix and we're guided by the FIA and Formula One management or Formula One security who, who led us through. So, um, After the race, Tom Wood did come and see me in the media room. I was there quite late until about 8.15 and apologised on behalf of the FIA and took responsibility and said it was their fault. And he would like to apologise to all the Formula One photographers uh, that were there. And I have passed that on to quite a few people. So there's my point of view. Um, I think it clears everything up. The people that are actually walking down the pit lane, if you see in the video, are either marshals or scrutineers. They're mm. not photographers. So again, um, all that speculation, all that story about people being in the way is total rubbish and um, needs to be retracted. And the apology has been given by the FIA. I mean, yes, someone could have stepped out, someone could have walked backwards, but that's the same for being in the pit lane, for being in any situation like that. Um some Grand Prix, we are actually beyond the um, the path into the pit lane and we come out of the FIA garage. Now, maybe that's something they'll bring in in the future. Tom Wood did say that they will bring out a updated uh, sheet or updated um, rule that will come out for uh, Miami. So we'll see. Mm.
1: Yeah, I saw <laughs> um, there was the FIA uh, sort of press release or their sort of official documents mm. for it saying they were going to look at restructuring it ahead of Miami. And this is sort of the second time we've had people in the pit lane at the very tail end of a race. we had it with Elbon in Australia mm. last year. Mm. Is this, obviously, I appreciate you've got sort of to, I don't want to say toe the line, but you obviously work very closely with Formula One. Do you think this is... Yeah, sure a issue where formula one is trying to encourage more media and more sort of people within to sort of the very close aspect of the sport do you think this is having a a security risk associated with it or is this just i think it's
0: just a mistake i mean it's a a simple it's a simple mistake made by people that are in the knowledge but i mean we're not in the knowledge so we, we just go by what they say i don't think um I think the rule is the, the rule is that we don't normally cross until the chequered flag goes out. So someone's just made a mistake and let us go too early. Simple as that. No one would be in the pit lane. I mean, there's cameramen in the pit lane. There's TV reporters. It's not just photographers. There's journalists. Everyone is allowed into the pit lane after mm. the race finishes. So as soon as the chequered flag drops, we are allowed in. And on the sprint race, there wasn't many of us, but we, we went after the chequered flag. And I was actually asking, now the chequered flag's gone, can we go? You know, and it... It, it sort of frustrates you a little bit because you want to get across that pit lane and not get hit by a car. Because you imagine that the flag goes and then the cars do a slow lap. Mm. So you're probably looking at what, two, two minutes, three minutes for it to come round on a slow lap. You've got to get across the pit lane before it comes in. You know, it will come into Park Ferme So you've got to get across Park Fermi. Mm. I think the rule that will happen is that we'll probably just move where we come on, come into the Park Fermi down to where the FIA garage is, which we've done at quite a lot of races, but obviously yeah. we're going into their space, and maybe they don't want that, I don't know, but yeah. uh, uh, I don't think it's to do with extra media, I don't think it's to do what you said in terms of creating more um, emotions, I think we got plenty of emotions from Checo, and uh, I love the fact that um, he's more he, he's more emotional than, than a lot of the drivers, Max is quite subdued, he's probably won a lot of races and lost the his mojo a little bit in that sense, and it's just another race win. But Checo, for sure, creates so much emotions and great pictures. It was a pretty boring race, wasn't it, from my point of view? It
1: wasn't Um, great from the TV at home either.
0: (laughs) I mean, I was down at the... I did turn two, and then I went to turn one, and I probably stood there for probably 30 laps and just after doing five laps of shooting, I didn't, I think I saw one overtake, <laughs> mm. uh, but that was, that was at the back. <laughs> uh, but the emotions certainly on the podium were, were awesome. Park Ferme was amazing. Uh, I mean, obviously you just cover what happens. I was right next to check uh, Checo's uh, manager and uh, the emotions were, were amazing. And and, mm. and then onto the podium as well. The podium was great. And even for my position was, it was really good. And yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, this issue has been blown out of proportion beyond belief, to be honest. But um, no one was injured. All oh, right. Yeah. I mean, I can understand from from Esteban's point of view that coming down the pit lane at that speed and seeing people there is not the right, right the right way it should be. And um, I mean, there's been incidents where um, even team principals, I think there was one where was, was it one of the team principals for Ferrari nearly got in front of a car. Um, yes, yeah, they sort of crossed the live lane sort of yeah. after a recession or something, wasn't These it? These things just happen in the matter of seconds, you know. Mm. I would say we probably went 30 seconds before the chequered flag came in. I'm not sure. What was the time when Esteban came down the pit lane? Do um, we have a time for him?
3: He was
1: just ahead of the chequered flag coming out Yeah, that's no, what i saying. Because he was
0: on technically yeah. on the
1: lead lap. He was about not sure. far off being lapped. So yeah, it yeah. was about sort of barely 20 seconds before the chequered flag yeah, came out. Yeah,
0: Exactly. I, I looked over, I saw him going down the pit lane, come past me, and I was shocked. <laughs> mm. Um, people were sort of shouting and screaming, and then and then I looked up to see if the checkered flag had gone and it hadn't. And then, like you say, 20 seconds later it was it was waved. So um, but the FIA stewards or the sorry, the technical people that were in Park Fermi should have known that. That that they're, they're on headsets to to the flagman, to the to the control tower. So mm-hmm. communication is key in all sports, and in in certainly in in this case, it probably was lacking a little bit. Yeah, and it could have it could have been it could have been in it could have been serious, and someone mm-hmm. could have got clipped or by a car, and he may have had to stop, and then and then, then there would have been a a big stewards meeting with <laughs> with the team going and putting a protest in. I don't know whether they did anyway, but yeah. um um I, in my point of view. Yes, it was dangerous, but we just we, – we, we react to how the FIA – the FIA are our, our guide, us, as you could say, and they mm. they guided us in this case to go into the pit lane and we just do what we're told, really. I mean, yeah. and that's, that's the way it works. On track, we can go pretty much anywhere we like, but in this case, we are guided – to cross at a particular time, and and they told us we could go. Mm. I mean, it's quite funny that the FA put the tenter barrier up across the pit lane, and they yeah. had to take that down quite quickly. Yeah, um, they and that's to stop people going any further than you know towards the cars when they line up at the mm. end. That's more than anything, and uh, so yeah, uh, that's my point of view. And and I think um, we have been, um, yeah, I, I don't think we did anything wrong, to be honest, from my point of view.
1: Anyway, there'll probably be more from Mark in later editions as we had a fairly good old chat this morning. Um, We'll move on to the one final piece that I sort of noted down after the race, which was the choice to use the softest compounds didn't bring the spice that Formula One, FIA and Pirelli were really expecting. In reality, it just drove most drivers to do a one-stop strategy or in the case of Ocon, a non-stop. I think this is really a case of sometimes the softest tyre does not provide the best racing.
2: I was more worried about tyre blowouts at the end. Because I was thinking
1: the same thing. On. Mm. I mean, Ocon had done essentially fifty laps on those tyres, plus a lap to the grid, plus and a few of them were on the safety car. Admittedly, but it's an awful lot of distance to be putting into those tyres on a circuit that has a record for really tearing into them. So,
2: I think maybe it didn't happen because no one was pushing, because everyone was on the same strategy, everyone was struggling pretty much the same. So. We just saw nothing, yeah, it was it. very
3: Australia esque in that way, and that they all got to pit under a safety car red flag in that instance and just coast essentially. And no one has to push at all or anything, and everyone's just kind of happy with their lot. Mm,
1: although, to a certain extent, peak drivers were pushing. I mean, we saw both Max and Checo at points touching the walls coming through the top section, and there were sure, but it wasn't for like a sustained
3: amount of time. And I think it was kind of a measured. Amount of push and then hold back and maintain position, and then we'll try it again a little bit. It was not constant and constant, constant.
1: Mm, I think this is possibly something that was just between Max and Checo. With Max trying to chase down Checo, they were pushing through that sort of top sector of the circuit. And they said afterwards they were both sort of showing each other their cars and pointing at the rims and the sidewalls of the tyres where you could see they'd been sort of brushed against walls and things and they said yeah we were pushing hard but the hard didn't have the grip we were expecting so that was why you saw them sort of sliding wide on the corner exit and you just saw them occasionally touch the tech pro or touch the sort of concrete barriers so it's Yeah, again, softest tyre, the best racing it does not necessarily provide. However, we've still got some winners and spinners to draw from all of that. Timo, I will open up with you and your winner, please.
3: I thought I'd go for someone a little bit different this week. So I've gone for Lando Norris, which, okay, P9, but it's his second point scoring race in a row after what has been a pretty shoddy start to the season for him and McLaren. And they brought some upgrades. You could see that they got a bit quicker. He had a neat little overtake on Hulkenberg, I want to say just before the castle section in a place where you don't generally see a lot of overtaking. And I just thought he had a kind of damage limitation race. So I just thought, nice, solid points. And like I was saying earlier, a couple of points for a team a little bit further down the pecking order could make all the difference later. So it was nice that he could just have a quiet, no-nonsense, no-drama race for a change. Mm -hmm.
1: Ellie Mae your winner
2: I'll let Emmy go first in case she's got one of mine and then I can just switch
4: <laughs> I would say although it hasn't been their best weekend performance wise I would say Aston Martin because sort of the teamwork you saw between Alonso and Stroll throughout the race and sort of those little things that Alonso was passing over the radio I thought actually it reflected on the way that the team have worked these past few races as well so I thought actually it was quite a successful weekend for them, even if they weren't back on the podium.
1: There were some definitely weird moments of Fernando Alonso teamsmanship, which I don't think no one, we'd never seen that before with Fernando Alonso and a team. um, Let alone sort of saying, oh, I found this brake balance is really working here. Admittedly, a few laps after he told them Stroll about that brake balance, Stroll immediately went rot right wide at turn 16. But it's, it's strange and equally Stroll saying that, oh, I'm not going to fight Alonso. We're going to sort of basically go home flying formation.
3: There's... Well, the Alonso's reply to that was pretty funny. He's like, he could try, but he's not going to get past me anyway.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's odd to think that there's something in that team has clicked for Alonso to think, no, there's a very real chance I could achieve something quite notable here. Not going to try and screw it up by being the same sort of hot-headed young driver he was potentially back in his McLaren or his Renault days where he was – Frankly, a bit of a pain to work with, even if you were on his side of the garage. He was a bit sort of tempestuous to say the best.
2: Fernando is always thinking like 10 steps ahead of everyone. So he's probably thinking this is the last chance I've got to win a championship. I really need to work with my team here to get a championship winning card so that I can actually win this championship.
1: Mm. He's playing chess. Everyone else is playing checkers. He's like he's playing a completely different board game, and it is it's paying dividends easily. Anyway, we'll go back to you then for your winner.
2: Yes, it wasn't the same. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I think Leclerc, he had a really strong weekend Obviously, he took pole in both qualifying and the sprint shootout, making the first non-Red Bull driver the season to do that. And then he went on to have two very good races. As I've said earlier on, it's hard to tell whether Ferrari are improving due to Baku being such a unique circuit but I think one thing's for sure Leclerc really optimised on what he could this weekend and got the best out of that car
1: there was he definitely drew a lot more from it than I think people were expecting and he, he looked on a far better form than had been previously so certainly deserving I think I've gone pretty pretty straight down the middle with my winner I've gone for Perez I think the fact that he's He came into this weekend, I don't want to say an underdog, but everyone sort of knows he likes a street circuit and to come back out fighting and really show that he's got a lot, sort of a lot of fire behind him is what we want to see. So it's nice to see that he's possibly going to shake up this season and give us a bit of spice that we anticipate or really could do with. So I'm all all on the Paris hype train here. Meanwhile, opposite side of the scale, our spinners from the weekend, drivers or teams or people rather that we feel have done less favourably, um, Timo, we'll again start with you.
3: I've got to go for Alfa Mayo this weekend. I mean, they've had a little bit of a shoddy season so far, but this weekend really took the biscuit, really. And Joe retiring, I'm pretty sure that wasn't great for him. And he was doing it right up to that point. But it wasn't anything particularly to write home about. And then Bottas on this strategy, I would say in questionable circumstances, because I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it didn't work. I mean, I get that you've got to try something but three stops. I suppose you were just hoping Baku was going to be Baku, but ever since the new regulations have kicked in, Baku's been very uncharacteristically dull, so it just didn't come through for them and it was just kind of a woeful weekend overall for them and it's, I'm hoping maybe it's a reverse of last year and they have a terrible first half and then they come back and really have a good second half, but it just kind of, there doesn't seem to be anything working there at the moment. It's kind of, they're there. And it was just very unfortunate to see because we know Joe's a good driver from his F2 days and from some glimpses we saw from last year. And we know what Bottas can do, even when the car isn't great. So it was just a very messy weekend and just very unfortunate because we like to see drivers doing well. And it was, and you can't really blame it on them or the car. It was just a bit of everything. And it was just very, eh.
1: Mm. I mean, arguably Alfa Romeo should be having a better season this year because they're not going to get latifi as they famously pointed out last season. Um, Ellie May, your spinner, or do we fancy going to Imi first? Who, Which way do you want to take the gamble? Who's picked something the other one might have picked?
2: I picked Alpine. Is that the same? <laughs> I'll let you
4: go first. <laughs> so, Alpine, that just... They just—it wasn't their weekend. Obviously, you had the issues. I
3: think a lot of that.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was their issues on Friday. Obviously, Gasly's car didn't exactly do a lot apart from cause some nice pictures, as I saw on Twitter. But um yeah, and I think I saw someone say that Netflix are were actually with them this weekend. So <laughs> this might have just been another rendition of the Netflix curse, and we'll see. It very nicely dramatised next year but obviously Gasly had issues and then there's Ocon having to start from pit lane and then whilst his race was quite good having to then pit right at the end of the race just put him right back down order so just it wasn't their weekend
2: Mm.
1: I think Ocon's defence through the race was pretty decent the fact that he was able to hold off Hülkenberg, and even once Hülkenberg dropped off he didn't make it easy for other people coming past him, even on those worn hards so he wasn't doing badly, but yeah, things went from bad Again, to worse. nothing against
3: Hülkenberg there but he shouldn't have been fighting him anyway, he should have been further up the grid.
1: Mm, ideally but that seems to be this weird concept you have that Hülkenberg should be sort of a world champion four times over. But um... well, Not
3: me, that's Ellie me. but I'm just more thinking from a Haas perspective and then Alpine of how they've been doing over the last couple of years. Alpine have been on this upwards trajectory and then this year they've kind of forgot to Take that step up, and they've just kind of been. It's kind of like preseason testing has defined their season so far. They're just like, we don't know, but it's not good. It's not awful, but it's just they're they're there.
1: Yeah, the capacity for that alpine seems to pinball between a surprising amount of like really good bits, and then it just sort of shits its gearbox and catches fire. Like they seem to have nothing in the middle. It's either great or. Bollocks, it's on fire again, and there is nothing in the middle, which is really annoying if you want to be an Alpine fan because it's either, oh, we're doing well, ah, fire extinguishes out again. And that's which is it's, it's a tricky way to be an F1 fan. It's something as a Ferrari fan you get used to after a while. I'll say that much, but so Ellie May, have you got a different spinner that you'd be able to throw in, or you do you want to simply concur that being an Alpine fan is terrible, especially after two race weekends where they've been pointless? I
2: will concur that being an Alpine fan is. Terrible right now. I mean, we should have seen it coming as Gasly is in that team and sprints are not his friend. I (laughs) have seen him be successful in a single sprint race or just the whole weekend of a sprint in general. And as Imi was saying, obviously he crashed out in qualifying, was then only 19th in the sprint shootout, and Ocon wasn't that much further up, was what, 12th in quality and 13th in the sprint which ultimately didn't even matter because he started on the in the pit name for both of them. And both of them just really, I think, just had a lacklustre sprint and race with Gasly being only one of two drivers to pit three times during that race, meaning he kept just falling down the order and almost fighting Bottas for last position. And it all really, the pack was so tightly bunched together because of his teammate Ocon, because he started on the hard tyre and was waiting for that opportunity. I can't say it because of my (laughs) invisibility. Opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) What opportunistic moment (laughs) to pit, which obviously never ultimately happened and then led to that last lap carnage.
1: Hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, I've gone for, again, a fairly obvious spinner, De Vries, and yes, he's he's a world champion in a different single-seater class of racing, but he's... Been a world champion in Formula Two, he is a fantastic driver by every other measure. And we're just seeing some very sort of sloppy mistakes that you'd potentially be expecting to see from other drivers that are often regarded as sort of more pay drivers, not someone who came into F1 off a huge high. Really, everyone sort of had this stunning image of him coming out the back of Monza last year where he drove the wheels off that Williams, bagged some points, and everyone went, Geez, that's not bad, give him an F1 seat. And then all of a sudden we're seeing potentially the problem that that's caused. He's not had a conventional path to F1, and potentially that's coming back to biting him in the arse. I think the defense
3: for him it's this whole thing there of Rookie, only the fourth race, three weeks out of the car due to the big break, coup, and a difficult to drive car, and Yuki obviously will look better against him because he's just more experienced and knows how to drive a terrible car at this point. So I'm not saying that your criticisms are not valid, but I also think it's potentially a little bit harsh to do. If he's still doing this in Singapore and Japan, then I will throw the chair at him with you as well. But until such time, I think it's just a lot of... He's kind of living out a series of unfortunate events right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Consider this then more one of the Undercut podcasts sort of kick up tough the you should, yeah, the tough love strategies that we seem to love employing in our spinners sections
3: Let's watch him win the Miami Grand Prix again <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah um, We've got some other drivers that are worth a mention I know we've already touched on Yuki Sonoda, who just sort of had a bit of a middling weekend but again brought home some points for the team in the main race so not all bad really and again proving that the AlphaTauri can do things but it's certainly nowhere near as competent a car as that sort of Alpha Tauri Toro Rosso has been in previous years, where they've been, a, where they obviously had that Ghazali win, where previous years they've had podiums here and there and they've had top five finishes. They just don't seem to be able to really sort of hold on to that glimmer of hope they had back in the sort of 2019 20 period. And it's, it's not looking great. But yeah, for Yuki to be able to extract points from it, I think it's pretty solid, unless anyone's got a complete counter to my idea. No, but I
2: think. Sprint aside where he obviously crashed, which (laughs) left us left me quite amused as that tire was following him down the hill. Um, and then when he came out after he pitted, and that car was going sideways down the straights. But other than that Did you did
3: you see the um Max Verstappen meme that they did with Yuki in his tire?
1: Yes, yeah. Max that <laughs> Yuki in his car is Jos Verstappen and Max is simply the tire being left behind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that Max Verstappen on a petrol station. Iconic. <laughs> Absolutely love it. But yeah, the fact that they sent him out on a car that clearly probably had cracked rear suspension. So the whole thing was like a the one shopping troll you avoid when you go to Tesco's because it's just going sideways the entire time. And yeah. If anything, it's impressive he managed to get it round the circuit without binning it, especially given the fact that it's crabbing, so it's significantly wider now, it's on the diagonal. To get it through that castle section without touching the walls again, it's like the best version of like the wire game you could have possibly imagined playing, just with a several million pound Formula One car. Um, Equally, Ocon I think is definitely a driver worth a mention. He held onto his tyres a lot better than Hulkenberg did and somehow didn't kill 30 people on pit entry. Um, So yeah, credit to him there for at least awareness and simply not group being himself into a crowd of people. Um, And then I definitely want to give a nod to Oscar Piastri. Not that far off Lando Norris across the weekend, all things considered. Pretty good pace, pretty good driving, and that's really good considering he's down three kilos at the moment because he can't keep down food or water because he's had an incredible bout of food poisoning and yeah mark webber sort of had been talking to the press and said yeah my, my little guy is uh, feeling a lot little at the moment because it, he just hasn't been able to really get any nutritional water on board so the fact that he went out there to do a sprint weekend as well with like added elements of racing while feeling that grim is pretty good. There was a horrific photograph of him in the paddock afterwards, sort of propped against a wall, sat on the floor looking haggard. I was like, that's credit where it's due for pushing yourself through that weekend in
3: warm conditions too. It's that's not bad. So yeah. do you know else stand out for you and me this weekend.
4: I don't think anyone that hasn't been mentioned already, to be honest. Fair enough. <laughs> Just because of how well it really
1: was. Anyone else got any sort of drivers worth a mention, or or people worth a mention, really from across the board? There could there could be other little standout performances.
3: Not from Formula One. Not from Formula One. No, IndyCar. Yes. Yes, but we'll get to that later on a different thing. <laughs> We're not recording. <laughs> um, well, that
1: moves us on to our predictions review, and it's one point of piece across the board. Um, myself for the Perez win. Uh, Timo for the Russell fastest lap, something which you're going to keep predicting until it happened. It's now happened. Yeah, four um, races. That
3: didn't take as long as I thought it would, so I now have really changed that.
1: <laughs> um, and Ellie May for a Charles Leclerc P3. So, yeah, I think we we might have shot for the moon with our predictions on that one. Certainly myself hoping for a Lance Stroll pole and potentially a Stroll podium, but did not anticipate the Aston Martin being that drunken. I did
3: get some satisfaction from the fact that Ellie May had Max down for fastest lap which he had until the very last lap when George took it and I just thought oh I'm just going to be a little bit smug there just and when, the shaking of the head was all worth the waiting.
2: When George pitted I was so mad because <laughs> I was like you took a point off me in the sprint because I said I think it was Leclerc because hopefully Verstappen would have got Leclerc which put, would have put then like Leclerc in third then Verstappen could have got second Pushing, yeah, pushing Leclerc down into third, which is what I predicted. For the, well, although we didn't actually include the sprint. We didn't
3: do any sprint predictions we didn't, because we, we didn't we see stuck the
2: point. I thought we were going to do both.
3: Mm. We're not going to give you that many points. You're already beating us by far too much already. I wouldn't, after got, I wouldn't have got any
2: more points. I would have just got the one point. It would have been Jesse that would have got two for Perez winning.
3: Yeah. Well, so we, learned, learned, we learned
2: some lessons. lessons.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll berate about Timo berated me for saying that my Madcap prediction of five retirements wasn't crazy I was,
3: enough. I was hoping that 2022 was a blip in Baku history and that we weren't going to have another dull race two years in a row, so that was a bit on me for expecting something of Baku but there we go.
2: Except five cars did retire in 2022.
3: Yeah, well we weren't predicting that last year so that's too bad.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll move on to Constructors Countdown <laughs> Four teams walked away from Baku pointless this week, so let's see what that's done to the standings. Williams still have one point and sit on 10th. Alpha Tauri double their tally with Yuki taking a point, securing their 9th place. Alpha Romeo saw no points on the board this weekend, but with 6 points, sit clear of the Fianza outfit. Haas also took no points home this weekend, so remain just a point ahead of the Italo Swiss outfit in 7th. Alpine sit a further point ahead again in 6th, suffering another point free weekend. McLaren add a further 2 points to their total for a gross of 14 in 5th place. Top four remain unchanged since the start of the season. Ferrari in fourth, closing what was a 30-point gap, leaving Albert Park to a 14-point golf to Mercedes in third. Aston Martin inches out its lead in second over Mercedes, Silverstone bagging two more points than Brackley. And at the top, it's Red Bull taking their 58-point lead and extending it to 93, meaning that the spread of all the teams from second to tenth would fit in the gap between first and second. Hooray for the new technical regulations. Next, we have our F1 Fantasy review. We're running our F1 Fantasy League this season, and it's been a pretty little packed one, actually. Um, but coming out of Baku, our highest point scorer was Alex H9 with 442 points then his second team really mopped up with 431 and regular top end finisher at Francisco Roads 1 came third with 384 meanwhile on the ground with some of our teams, my Jaffa Cake Racing I think is my highest team from the weekend, P11 284 points, EMT Racing P16 250 and on the curbs, is that your highest scoring one, P22 with two hundred thirty. And the,
3: the worst bit was I'm happy with that because I just thought, you know what, all the drivers finished, all the teams did all right. And for a team that I didn't look at and meant to look at in the three week break and just forgot about, I'll take that. Oof,
2: I, think I've, I think I've got both Bottas and DeFries in my team. So I'm thinking I might take
3: explain them out. you.
2: Mm, I might take them out.
3: Mm,
1: I know that some of mine were sort of somewhat hampered by a few. Bum choices to say the least um overall it's at francisco Rhodes one out in front with 1330 points alex h9 v2 in second with 1328 and ah etc in third with 1301 it's written a with then loads of g's after i assume whoever's name that is is supposed to be like an ah just sort of scream of pain um emt really obviously- furry quite likely. Um, EMT Racing moves down to P9, 1,051 points overall. Jaffa Cake Racing stays on P11 uh, with 922 points. You have to crack the 1,000 p- point mark. And uh, on the curbs, moves down to P18, 822 points. Then you've included BRT Yamaha down in th- from in P31 of 33 with 473 points. I'm not doing what well, 200 think-
3: points clear of the next one down, so I think you're safe with P31 for now. I, please I, subscribe. It's week about 260 points or something silly.
1: Yeah, I know that the ones at the bottom are like two of the podcast ones. It's um, Experiment <laughs> Underdog, which is Ellie May's one, which is like all the underdogs, which overtook ah. this weekend. Um,
4: wow. uh, please subscribe. Please
1: subscribe, which now dropped to the bottom on 223. So really going well there um, still. We'll see how things progress in Miami, which is up next. And that sort of wraps up neatly all we've got time for on this week's episode. Uh, join us again soon when we'll be reviewing the Feeder Series action from Azerbaijan, as well as looking ahead to the first of three rounds in the United States of America. In the meantime, Timo, where can you be found?
3: You can find me over on Is It Fast, on The Curbs, the Nitro RX Podcast, Paddock Sorority, and of course, Instagram
1: lovely imi whereabouts can we find you
4: i can be found over along the racing line and also over on the motormouth podcast as well
1: lovely ellie Mae. where can the people find you
2: you can find me creating the graphics for instagram or over on our tiktok
1: beautiful and in the meantime you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on cars you can also find the podcast we're over on Twitter as well and we've already mentioned Instagram and moreover I can be found writing for classic car weekly by the time this comes out there will be a new issue out where you can enjoy the latest installment of my life with my classic MG and I think tomorrow I'm supposed to be going and road testing a Citroen 2 CV so that will be interesting
3: don't roll it down any hills
1: I won't but it is the 007 edition so it would be good that's why this- I'm warning you don't roll yeah. it
3: down any hills <laughs>
1: Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. I've got to go and drive a very old Citroen, and we've got to go and get ready for the Miami Grand Prix.